we typically have five, ten, so this is real. We're pretty excited about this, and I think the content has a lot to do with it as well. Um, I want to welcome all of you here and also folks who are joining us from afar. I know there's a group of folks from uh, New London Hospital who are joining us, and I suspect there are several other folks as well, so thank you. Um, April is National Donate Life Month, and today we hope to spread awareness of organ donation. Although more people are registering as organ donors, the list of patients in need of a transplant does continue to grow. And as of this morning when I checked the numbers online, right now more than 123,000 Americans are on a wait list to receive an organ or tissue transplant. According to a recent report, 731 lives were saved in New England through organ donations last year alone. So before I introduce our uh, speakers, I do have several accreditation announcements to share with you. Um, after the program, you will all receive an email from our office, the Center for Continuing, edu Continuing Education, with a link to an online evaluation. And upon completion of that, your credit is automatically uploaded to your online transcript. We do value your feedback, and we really hope you will complete the evaluation form and let us know how this session worked for you and give us some suggestions for future Nursing Grand Rounds topics. Um, uh, you do need to sign in if you're here in order for us to know that you were in attendance, and um, you must attend at least 80% of this program in order to receive your credit. For folks who are online, um, if you have any questions during the presentation, Judy Langhans is monitoring her email and will share your uh, question or comment with our speakers. Her email is judith.m, as in Mary, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Also, for folks who are viewing online, uh, please email Judy within an hour of the completion of this presentation, stating that you did participate and share with her your name, degree, and zip code. Again, this is so we can get your transcripts uploaded. Um, there are instructions on how to access your transcripts by the sign-in sheet here, or you can contact Judy directly after the program. We want you to know that neither our speakers nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity, and no one refused to disclose. Today our speakers will be sharing with you information about organ procurement and how you can optimize donation outcomes and provide donor families with support and comfort as they go through the donation process with their loved one. At this time, I'm going to introduce our first, oh now, thanks so much. Well, the camera's over to Karen. I'm going to uh, ask Karen Lord to come forward. Karen is the Advanced Practice Donation Coordinator for the New England Organ Bank, and she has many, many years uh, working with donor patients and their families. And um, it's been a long time since, but we've been doing this for a long, long time, right? So this is uh, always a very popular nursing grand rounds uh, topic. Um, so Karen will introduce several other guests and speakers who are here today. Uh, we're honored to have the opportunity to learn from you and hear your experiences, all of you. And so I would like everyone to just Join me in welcoming them to Dr. Hitchcock.
working with families, um, making donation happen for them, and seeing people get transplanted, and seeing how it changes their life. So, um, to start off today, I would just like, uh, first of all, to introduce our guests from the New England Orchid Bank. Um, Helen Nelson is the Vice President um, at the New England Orchid Bank, so welcome, Helen. And Alice Glazier is our new CEO, has been at the Oregon Bank for a while, and is now uh, one week into being our CEO. So, um, welcome. Uh, we're delighted. Jose Durning, who is our manager, is visiting. And all of these people who have questions, absolutely know the answers. Uh, Denise Bouchardor, uh, who is our team leader for the North Queen. Harry Casey, who is like my bookend, who saves me from whatever trouble I get into. So, and she covers Dartmouth along with me. And uh, Dave Tooney, who also covers Dartmouth, and because we have a lot to do in the ICU or the OR. Um, Kelly Green is here. She actually works with donor families. And she brought the quilt, uh, and she would be glad to share with you sort of uh, how our donor families are representing in that. So, uh, first of all, um, on our agenda today is Dr. Friedman, who is uh, with the Department of Surgery, a transplant surgeon, and we're thrilled that he's here to welcome everybody. And for you, thank you all so much for coming. And I would be remiss if I didn't, and I'm sure I'm going to embarrass him, but Dr. Dow, who was a transplant surgeon here, we're thrilled to have him visiting with us today as well. Well, I know you're not here because of me. <laughs> But actually, I know why you're here, and that's because what I've known the whole time I've been here is nursing's commitment at Dartmouth organ donation. And that's really what makes it work. All of you who are at the bedside all the time with our patients, through the thick and the thin, the good and the bad, and, and particularly when somebody is progressing towards uh, end-of-life care. You guys are all at the bedside. And we learned a long time ago, and a lot of the deliberations that we have been involved with the Oregon Bank for 19 years, longer than Alex, actually. Um, maybe almost as long as Karen. <laughs> but, but we learned a long time ago is what influences that decision of a family who haven't considered it uh, yet, who haven't registered, is their experience in the hospital. And that experience starts a lot of times the first time they come to the emergency room. Who's the first person they see in the emergency room? It's a nurse, usually, often. And that, that first interaction sets the mindset of the patients, their families, towards whether this is going to end up being a good experience or a bad experience, regardless of what the condition of the patient is. We've learned a long time ago that if the culture of the hospital is geared towards organ donation, if the nursing staff is supportive and understands and, and is willing to spend the time with the families going through the donation process, and that exists at the at every level, then donation is going to be successful and families are going to agree to it. And I, in my time here, that is exactly the culture that we have here. And it's your support for making that happen. Uh, that means that our statistics are actually really some of the best in the country and certainly in the top level in New England for the number of donors identified and referred. Now, not everybody agrees ultimately, but the fact is that through your efforts, we don't miss the opportunity for donation, to offer that opportunity to families. It's never here at Dartmouth Hitchcock, which is not the way it happens in a lot of the hospitals. 
And that is in large part to, to the support and the understanding and the knowledge that the nursing center has for organ donation. And as you all know, because you've experienced it, it's really cool when it works. That's what I tell my students, and that's why I'm transplanted. <coughs> I just heard from a patient of mine yesterday who I transplanted in 2006 when I was down in Boston, who lives in Vermont. Just call, just out of the blue, totally out of the blue, calling me up to say thank you. And that, that's really what it's all about. That guy would have been dead six months after I met him. Somebody didn't need to donate, and that changed his life. And that's really what it's all about. So thanks for coming. There's a lot more interesting people to speak to than me, so welcome and I look forward to the rest of the day here. I think there's a theme here that we know who people are here to listen to. But until we get there, and my IT person here, we've had multiple computer issues this morning, so I think they warned me not to touch it. <laughs> so one of the things I'd like you to do um, to start is just for 15 seconds, close your eyes. And I want you to think about what it might be like if you were on the waiting list and waiting for that phone to ring. And when I, when I put this together, I did include the power of one because it really is all about uh, the ones. So again, imagine being the, that person who picks up the phone. It is the ultimate gift. We talk about the donor, the donor family. This is actually a family whose daughter was a donor, and then she was on the uh, rose parade float, and this is her daughter's uh, picture. They're always at the center of our work. However, as we look around this, we can't do this. I can't do it by myself. Dr. Freeman can't do it by himself. It really takes the whole collaborative effort to make this happen. Our human organization, we use a lot of acronyms. And so if you have questions, just let us know. Again, always at the center of it, as it is here. ancient This is the most um, updated slide, but we, as Deb was saying, we have over 123,000, and when we would have looked at the list yesterday, we know that there would have been more people there today. So it's an ever, ever uh, important need. And I know that not everybody works in um, donation and transplant, so I just wanted to just give you a little spattering and just remind you of the organs that can be recovered, uh, the heart, lungs, liver, kidney, pancreas, and intestine. Just in case you need a visual. <laughs> and then, again, uh, many people um, die in the way that they may be an organ donor, but many people become tissue donors, and that is just a tremendous gift. And these are, you can see, this is the before and after of the palate transplant palate and what a tissue transplant. It's, uh, it's huge. And you, we have been doing, um, as Carmen certainly will attest, the vascular composite holocaust, where people will have face transplants, arm transplants, and these all have their gifts uh, from donor families. The computer guy is after me. <laughs> Use the mic, please. Yes, sorry. 
So just uh, briefly, the critical role of the nurse. I think, again, this is centered because, too, the, the nurses are key. And these are the things that you, you do every day. You advocate progressive care of your patients and hope for their recovery and getting better and going home. We say we get really excited sometimes when people make a referral to us, and then the next day they may call and say the person is getting better. We say they think sometimes that maybe that's not what we want. We're delighted when we hear the patients also uh, get better. But the nurse, again, assists with brain death deprivation, ensures proper appropriate tests, and supportive language. And I think along with the social workers as well, is they're sort of collaboratively having this huddle and looking, how can we take best care, take care excuse me, of the patient and the family? Just have, um, and I think I uh, did a lecture one time, and a person said to me, you know, gee, I'm really gonna be, Busy over here with this patient, and so I have a This is a person who's deceased, and he said, You know, it's really important to try to reframe that because when you're taking care of a donor patient, I know the nurses are like so busy, but they're actually taking care of seven to eight uh, other patients as recipients, so it's really a huge I wonder if you're tired. And I always say, You know, we talk about hearts and lungs and lungs and pancreas, but for me, it's really, it's about the faces behind these. Each one of those represents a person. This is a quote from, um, we talk about this is a, a gift for the person who's receiving the organ, but for the donor family, it's a gift to them too. It's a law, it's a lasting legacy. Um, and this is a quote from our donor mom. It says, I remember lying in bed that Friday night and into Saturday morning thinking about the flurry of activity that was going on around her. As somehow it gave me this huge feeling of comfort. It was like I was so excited about the fact that her heart was going to continue to beat in someone else's chest. And so I, I think that really um, says so much about uh, the work that we do, but also, and again, go back to thinking about the power of one. It's one person signing up to be an organ tissue donor, one family supporting the donor's designation, authorization, one person saving one to nine lives with organ donation, and up to 50 with tissue donation. And the message for you is that one nurse picking up the phone and making the referral, because without that one call, it never happens. We would not know about it if we don't hear the news. So uh, we're very, very grateful for all that you do and the work that you do. And I think, again, um, the testament is hearing from people who it has touched personally. And so I'd like to introduce next my colleague, who will share with you Donation in a very personal way some years ago. Um, this is a picture of my mom. 
along with a picture of my mother, myself, and my sister um, a long time ago when I didn't mind getting photographed in a bathing suit. <laughs> so, like I said, my mom, Paula Harrington, she was an organ donor. I'm excited to speak to you today about her because she gives me an opportunity to talk about my wonderful, loving mother. It actually allows me to share the experience and with my family decided to donate her organs. It gives me the opportunity to stand here in front of all of you and thank you for all that you have done um, for families that you have worked with through the donation process and to continue on respecting that end-of-life decision of becoming a donor. So my mom, she was 49, and I say a very young 49 as I fast approach her age. She was a beautiful mother, wife, aunt, godmother, friend, and confidant to more people than I would ever have time to mention. When I think of her, I think of generous, honest, kind, more fun than fun, happy, alive, but most of all, strong and decisive. Um, just after knowing my mom for a few, minute, uh, a few moments, you knew she was a woman that, when she made up her mind, that was it, and you could just ask my dad. <laughs> it was a Friday night, October 6th, so I thought it was going to be a typical fun night of shopping with my mom and my aunts, turned into something quite different. My mom was behind the wheel of the car, and in a half second's time, she simply lost control. I left the scene with just a scratch, but my mom sustained a critical head injury, an injury that would never allow her to make her own decisions ever again. My mom was brought to a trauma center in Boston, and we waited as she underwent hours of surgery, only to be met by her surgeons that her situation was still very grave. We hoped for the best, but we were faced with the worst. Mom was in this awful place where there was no chance that she would recover from her injuries, and with that, we decided it was time to let her go. At that time, we were introduced to somebody from the New England Working Bank by the name of Alan. Alan approached my family about the opportunity for a donation after cardiac death. My family was faced to having to make this decision for my mother. At one time, you okay? <laughs> uh, this was one time my mom was not going to be capable of making her own decision, and what I view now is one of the most important decisions of her life. Getting over the initial shock that we actually had to make this decision was the worst part of all. Um, I have to say the timing of the approach was so important. My family really needed time to deal with the gravity of my mom's injury before we were faced with this decision about donation. After the shock, accepting that there were no guarantees was also difficult for my family. It was made very clear to us that even though we were going along this road, there were no guarantees that she would be able to save lives, and that was also very tough. My mom never spoke the words, I want to be an organ donor. She worked in hospitals for most of her adult life, but wasn't anything that we ever talked about. But after giving it some thought, we knew that mom would want to give as long as it was possible. She was just such a giving person. So once we made the decision to donate, the reasons reinforcing it just kept surfacing in our minds. My mom is the most giving, loving person I know. And I say is and not was because the fact is she still is giving, giving life to her recipients and their family and friends. My mom will continue to give this most precious gift. I don't know who her recipients are, but sometimes I think to myself, Maybe she gave a mother back to a child, or a loving wife to a husband, or maybe a son or a brother to someone like any of you. A lot has changed since my mom's passing and her opportunity to become a donor. I've gotten married and I've had two beautiful boys. My sister moved to Hollywood to follow a dream. Now she's back home. <laughs> my dad has become an expert at online dating. I that when they were teenagers, so truly was a whole new experience for him, but um, he's embraced life and is 
the best Grampy that two grandsons could ever hope for. But through all these changes, what has remained is the peace and the comfort that my family feels knowing that we were able to give her this opportunity to give life. We were able to turn this horrible tragedy into something so very wonderful. So donation does start with you, as Karen mentioned. Without the phone call from the hospitals, none of this happens for any of us. And thank you all for doing that, for supporting donation, and for being here today. Happy Donate Life Month. <laughs> and with that, I'd love to introduce our next speaker, um, Carmen Charlton. I could truly say so much about this woman. She's a nurse, a survivor, an author, a musician, an international speaker, a mom, and a new grandmother. She's a true inspiration to so, so many. So with that, please welcome Carmen. presentation. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm only really going to talk about my face transplant. Um, I believe most of you know what happened to me almost eight years ago, but so much has changed, and um, my face transplant has been heaven sent. So this first picture, some of you probably recognize is me in the middle and my two daughters about 18 years ago. And that's me, the first year uh, this new hospital was built in 1991-92. And that's on Todd 1 of Thor West. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's when I met Sheldon. That was in, I met him in December of 2012. And that's at the end of January, two weeks before my face transplant. And that's me prior to my face transplant as well. I chose this picture because I had such severe scarring in my neck. And um, I really couldn't even keep my head up for very long. And that pain in my neck was my main motivation to have a face transplant. I also had other functional problems. I didn't have eyelids. I couldn't breathe fully through my nose. I didn't have lips. I drooled all the time. I didn't have a hairline at all on, on uh, in the front. So I had many, many issues. And when I was approached in 2011 to, as a possible candidate to have a face transplant, you know, when I really accepted that and really wanted that, I never looked back and I never regretted anything. <coughs> That on the right is my donor, Cheryl Benelli Ryder, and on the left is her daughter, Narinda. And that is me about 48 hours after my surgery. 
And I, well, I will get to that. And that's me eight days after. This is one of my favorite pictures. And that's me very, very red. I had one giant episode of rejection. And I, that's why I was in the hospital for six weeks. The first 32 and a half, three went very well, and they got ready to send me home. And as soon as they got ready to send me home, my face started turning very red. And I hit a high grade three rejection. And they had given me all the medications, and I can't even remember the list. It was, it was penal drugs that I hadn't even heard of. They'd given me everything, and my rejection uh, status was not diminishing at all. And one morning, Dr. Tonahat came in my room, and he came in early like they do, about 6 o'clock. But he didn't come in with all the, all the interns and med students. He came in alone. And I sat up in bed because it was just different. He pulled a chair to the side of my bed, and he sat down. And I sat up in bed. There was something going on. And he said, you know what? We've given you all, you know, all we can give you. And um, it's not helping. And I, I don't really know. I don't know if I have any more options left. And he said, you know, there's a big possibility we're going to have to take you back to surgery and renew your transplant. And I said, I'm, that's not going to happen. I said, I'm not doing that. And she said, well, I don't know if I have options. And I said, I said, I'm, I won't survive that. I, by choice, will not survive that. I don't want to go back. I said, you need to come up with something. And he said, well, there is one drug called Campax that they use for kidney transplants. They've never used it on a face. And I, of course, I was the only, the first face they did that was mismatched. I did not have a, a, a complete match with my donor. So this was uh, something that I didn't expect uh, to be so severe, but I did know that it was, it was a possibility. So he said, and I said, well, what about that drug? I'll, I'll take that. And he says it comes with a 2 to 10% two to risk of death. And he had told me two years prior to that, more than once that I would not have to risk my life to have a face transplant. But none of that mattered then. Um, I was willing, more than willing to do it. So I asked him, okay, well, let's do that. So they, they're hesitant, but they did give me the CAMPAC, but they only gave me a small dose. And that small dose with several weeks of plasmapheresis, turned my rejection around. And then I, I went home about three weeks after this. This is the care I got at Brigham. This is my one of my favorite nurses that took care of me. Her name's Juliet. And you can see how bright my face is compared to everything else. I don't know that's I'm sure you guys can see that okay. That is probably a familiar picture. That's Narinda at the press conference on May 1st, 2013. I met her the night before, and it was surreal to meet her. I didn't expect to meet her, certainly that early on. 
and I was thrilled that I got to meet her. And I'm always thrilled to see her. We have a beautiful relationship and friendship. We speak together uh, on occasion, and um, she's just she's just a beautiful, wonderful person. And as was her mother. And I heard lots of stories. And receiving a face transplant for me was not only the one of the biggest blessings in my life. It has helped me tremendously to move forward. It has just my comfort level alone has has been so greatly improved. I don't know what I would have done without it. I think I would have survived, but I wouldn't have survived very long. And because I received a face transplant, I have been able to completely wean off all narcotics more than a year ago, about a year ago. And I was on narcotics for seven years. So it was it was the biggest gift I could have gotten. And you know, it is it is different. A lot of some people I talk to haven't even heard of the face transplant. And um, but and it is very sci-fi. But if any, I, I know I know that if anybody has lived my life for a week of my life prior to my face transplant, and I'd give them my best week, <laughs> uh, they would have picked the face transplant. And that's me and Dr. Tomahawk the day of the press conference. You can see I my eyelids have, were not tight at the time. I couldn't even close my mouth initially. It, it took a while. I couldn't feel my face for months. And that's me in June 2013. I was going to get my eyelids fixed, which I did. But I had a, I had a piece of tape on my left eye. That's the eye I can see out of. And Dr. Tomahawk, bless him, didn't say anything, but did not like the fact that I wore a piece of tape to hold open my eye. I don't think it looked that good. At the time, I didn't care. I needed to see. So I ended up taking the tape off, and, and eventually I could open my eye enough so I could pretty much get my full field, or enough of my full field that I, can, I, I do all right. But that took a while, too. It took months of of that and even even when I was able to, to do without the tape, Dr. Tonahawk said, How are you doing that? And I said, Well I don't know. He said, You don't have a muscle there to open up your eye. I said, Well, I don't know, but it works. <laughs> without the tape. And that's me six months later. And that's me six months after that. That's at uh, in Washington DC. The position I'm with is a transplant surgeon, Julian Trebaz. He's a part of the face transplant team at the Brigham. And then I, I don't know if some of you remember seeing pictures. I had what I called a sausage at the end of my neck. Even after I healed, the, the swelling and the extra tissue just never went away. So I, I had that done I, about a year ago. And he released my chest along with it. That's why it's all ziggy-zaggy below my neck. And it was quite bruised and black for a while. But six months later, that's my neck six months later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
And, uh, and then, right after that, that is my new little grandson, Jonah, who was born October 27th. He's almost six months now. And that's the young, new little family. <laughs> that's my daughter, Hannah, and her boyfriend, Davis. <clears throat> and that's my older daughter, Liza, Hannah, and Jonah. My girls do very well. And that's me now. So that was me a few weeks ago before this great haircut. <laughs> I want to leave a, a few minutes for questions. So um, does anybody have any questions? Carmen, hi, it's Posey from the Oregon Bank. I met you about a year and a half ago. I'm so happy to see you again. Oh, yeah. I know you were planning to write another book. Are you in the midst of writing a follow-up? I, I am. It's in the early stages. Like I said, it's for a year. It's in the early stages. <laughs> it will be out. Maybe I can share the, I'll share the title with you. Um, it may change, but I don't think so. Uh, the title's going to be Many Faces, Same Soul, Creating a Life After Tragedy. And my second book is going to be much more inspiring for me to write than my first. Your first was pretty inspiring as yes, well. <laughs> Anybody else? Carmen? Uh, hi, this is Karen from the Orchid Bank. Um, what would you say what really uh, was so important, I mean, probably many things, from the nursing care that you got? What really endeared you to this nurse? Well. I didn't. I don't remember Juliet taking care of me prior to my face transplant. I don't think she did. But throughout my face transplant, especially in the ICU, I had the nurses that took care of me seven years prior, five, six years prior. When I was initially injured, I had pretty much the same nurses every opportunity they had to take care of me. And and then when I went to the floor, that's when Juliet took care of me. Juliet was so compassionate, she was so understanding, she never was rushed, even though I knew she was busy. You know, she, she just took the time, um, she took the time for me and I appreciated that. And she, and she, you know, she, she was more than just a nurse, she was almost like a friend. And even today, I, I text her, she texts me back. You know, it's a, it's a special bond I have with Juliet. Not that I don't have it with other nurses that have taken care of me for years. Um, there's a few, certainly in the ICU, that I still talk to. Um, but through the face transplant, Juliet was, was uh, the one that stood out for me. Carmen, this is Helen. I just wanted to... Um... In, in this group, let people know what a difference you've made nationally. Carmen and Miranda actually spoke last summer um, in, at our a national conference out in, where were we? Baltimore. Okay. <laughs> but um, a lot of people didn't know the story as well as maybe this group. And Carmen and Miranda, as the donor family, actually, had, I think, had at least three standing ovations and really brought down the house. And... We have gotten so many phone calls since that um, presentation that now she's going to be presenting out in San Diego with Miranda um, this month. 
snow, we're very excited about the sun. Um, and I think she's really, uh, there was one a CEO of an, uh, of an organ bank that basically stood up and said, he's had people asking for this program in his, to help him, um, but Carmen is really the one that gave him the courage to realize this is an important thing to do. So I just wanted to acknowledge what a, what a difference you're making nationally. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. I appreciate that. Are there any other questions? Carmen? Yeah. It's Sally. Hi, Sally. Um, in addition to continuing to work on your book, can you share anything else that's coming up for you in the next six months or so? Um, well, right now, right now I, I am going to Philadelphia next week. There's a, a big conference on transplantation in Philadelphia. I think North are surgeons and doctors. And I'm going uh, as Dr. Tomahawk's patient, so we're gonna, I'm going to do a patient session for him. And then we're going to California. Um, I'm starting in Sacramento. I'm speaking in Sacramento. And then I'm speaking for the New England Organ Bank in San Diego. And then I have a Southern Hospital Association of Southern California in San Diego after that. And then I'm speaking at the One Legacy in Los Angeles. And uh, do it, and then they're, the next day they're having a, a donate for life walk run in Fullerton, California, and I'll, I'll be at that. And then in June, I'll be in Boston. I spoke for the National Academy of Future Physicians and Medical Scientists. It will be my third time speaking for them, where all the uh, high schools, high school kids that are. Um, looking looking towards medical school scientists that kind of thing they come out and that's a big crowd that's usually over five thousand and we're just they were doing it in boston again uh so that will be in june so that's oh it's time to play banjo <laughs> Anybody have any other questions? Um, I do. Sheldon and Carmen. Yeah. Um, how long have you been playing the banjo? Um, it'll be two years in July. <coughs> Great. Mm -hmm. Carmen, it's Peg. Um, what would you say to patients? You, you're so brave and determined and have such courage, but so many patients are so fearful about that big step of agreeing to that type of surgery. So what, what would you say uh, to a patient who's having anxiety around a transplant or? Well, for me, it was a long wait. I waited 14 months. And in the first few months, I was actually ill because I was so scared that I'd get called. And, um, and I got very ill. And so then after that, I just sort of, I had to let it go. I had to just live day to day. And Dr. Kolnohawk called me a lot, but not for that. He called me for other things. And I'd answer the phone, I'd see that it was him, and he'd say, I'm not calling you without a donor. I'd say, yeah, I know. <laughs> but so then after a while, he just called and didn't say it anymore. And it was like, oh, it's Dr. Kolnohawk. I, I sort of almost forgot, because I knew it would be quite a while. So it's just sort of like, you got to let it go. you got to... I just had hope and faith that it would work out and that I would be better off in the near future. And that's all, I just sort of the general, that's how I thought of it. I didn't think of it in specifics, just get into the details and that makes you more anxious. Thanks, Carmen. 
wild and full of inspiration. There you go. I did my job. <laughs> Shepherds um, are OBAC and so forth, and so thank you for coming. That'd be really thank you. beautiful cake back here with a butterfly, which is our symbol for organ donors. So please have some cake. We say, let them eat cake. <laughs> thank you for coming.